Hey, everybody. Welcome to the weekly show where we take a look back and forward at some of the biggest news affecting the sport that we love. Whether it's a broken home run record, a famous player's birth, or a major franchise trade, we'll have it all covered. I'm Jeff Lambert, and this is This Week in Baseball History. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another week, another episode of This Week in Baseball History. I am your host, Jeff Lambert. It's great to be with you. I hope you've had a great end to the holiday season. I'm here currently in Massachusetts visiting family. I've had a couple days of rest time. It's been great. It's been a very uncharacteristically warm December uh, Christmas time here, here in uh, the Northeast, but, you know, it's been kind of nice, and I'm going to apologize in advance here. I'm sitting in my car recording on my phone. So if the quality is not up to snuff for what you're used to, I didn't pack all my recording equipment with me, but the show must go on. So I have some great topics to share with you this week. A lot happened here in the last week of December. Uh, Before we start, I obviously want to say thank you for being a supporter of Rounders, a history of baseball in America, for being a subscriber to this publication. It means a lot to me. So with that said, let's go ahead and jump into our topics for this week. On December 25th, 1927, Hall of Fame great Nellie Fox was born in St. Thomas, Pennsylvania. He began his career with the Philadelphia Athletics in 1947, but it was with the Chicago White Sox that he made his most significant impact. Fox was known for his batting prowess overall. He led the American League in hits four times and boasted a 288 lifetime batting average. He was a 12-time All-Star. His skills were not just limited to hitting, though. He was also renowned for his fielding, and he led the league in fielding average six times as a second baseman, with a career fielding percentage of 984, and he also won three gold gloves during his career. He was also known for his durability. He played in 798 consecutive games from 1956 to 1960. Now, the 1959 season is probably his best, particularly notable for him. He led the Go-Go White Sox to the American League pennant, and he was named the American League MVP. Now, despite all of these accomplishments, his induction into the Baseball Hall of Fame was delayed until 1997, 23 years after his death. So he was actually put into the hall posthumously. Now, his influence was felt by his teammates that he played with, but also on future generations. You had guys like Joe Morgan saying that he was an inspiration for them getting involved in baseball from a young age. So his dedication to the game overall, Fox's consistent performance, and his influence on others cement his status as one of baseball's greats. On December 26, 1919, the Yankees officially acquired Babe Ruth from the Red Sox. Yes, that's right. The great Bambino on this date was shipped over to New York. The transaction is interesting. Let me give you the details. So the Red Sox got from the Yankees $100,000, One-fourth of that was in cash, and the remainder was paid out in annual payments with a 6% interest rate. And then on top of that, to guarantee the loan, there was a $300,000 loan that was put up with Fenway Park as collateral. So the deal wasn't simply just a straight-up sports transaction. It was very complex, and it showed that there was a lot going on behind the scenes to this deal. And it started with Red Sox owner... Harry Frazee. Now, Frazee was involved in theatrical productions in addition to his ownership of the club, 
and he was financially pressed, and he was trying to finance a new play called No No Nanette. So part of what influenced this deal was sending Root so he could get some money back, the capital, to be able to run this theater production. So the Yankees' first payment of $25,000 was made on December 19th, 1919, as part of the $100,000 purchase price. And then on the 26th, we had the official signing of the contract, and then, of course, it was announced in January. So it's weird to stop and think about the fact that Fenway Park was used as collateral, and the Yankees actually had a financial stake in the park the Red Sox fans call so dear. So after joining the Yankees, Root's performance soared, obviously. It marks one of the most dramatic shifts in baseball history, honestly, between clubs. He transitioned from a successful pitcher to really becoming primarily a legendary slugger. And he set numerous records with the Yankees. In his first season with them, he hit 54 home runs, which was a record at the time. He batted 376. And then over the next 15 years with the Yankees, he hit 659 home runs. He maintained a 349 batting average. And he became, obviously, an even more central figure in the team's success and the sport's history. So the sale of Babe Ruth has had long-lasting implications for both teams. The Yankees entered an era of unprecedented success after they got him. And then, of course, on the Red Sox side, his departure marked the beginning of the curse of the Bambino, which we saw the Red Sox go 90-plus years without winning a World Series after this trade was made. I count myself lucky to be one that saw the Red Sox break that curse, got to go to the parade and celebrate when it happened. It was a very special moment. But it started with this, the sale of Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees on this date. On December 27, 1984, the Yankees acquired a pitcher who couldn't pitch home games. Let me explain. So, the Yanks made a deal for a guy named Ed Whitson who, to his credit, was coming off a very strong 14-8 and season with the San Diego Padres in the National League. He signed a five-year, $4.4 million contract with the Yankees. And this move was initially seen with hope and expectation it could be an anchor in the bullpen for New York. But it very quickly turned into one of the most uh, peculiar trade, uh, excuse me, peculiar free agent signings in baseball history. So Whitson's tenure with the Yankees was marred by this inability to perform effectively for the Yankees. And his struggles were particularly pronounced when he pitched at Yankee Stadium, to the point where, by the middle of his second year, he was so rattled by the New York crowd and the media that he could only pitch effectively when the Yankees were on the road. And his home game struggles reflect in his stats. So just to give you an example, in 1985, in his first year with the Yankees, he went 10-8 and eight with a 4.88 ERA, which is a huge difference from what he had posted the previous season when he was with the Padres. And the situation kept escalating. There was actually a point where Whitson and then-manager of the Yankees, Billy Martin, got involved in a physical altercation, and it highlighted the tension that was going on in the background that Whitson was facing now that he was with his new team. So that psychological uh, performance issues that he was having got so intense that the Yankees finally just cut bait two years in, traded him back to San Diego during the 1986 season. And then once Whitson was back with the Padres, he found his form again. He played four solid years for them after this, and he did, he did great. But the difference between his time in New York and San Diego is often cited as a bit of a cautionary tale. 
of the pressures that can accompany players when they go play in high-intensity cities like New York City. On December 28, 1983, the first big-name MLB player went over to Japan. So, a guy named Warren Cromartie made a significant move on the state in the world of baseball because he signed a three-year, $2.5 million contract with Japan's Yomiuri Giants. He was only 30 years old at the time. He was playing for the Montreal Expos. He had a 278 batting average, and he was a mainstay in the Expos lineup. But Cromartie was entering, in a lot of people's minds, the prime of his career. He made this very peculiar decision. And it marked the first time that a a well-known American player decided to go and play in a league that wasn't Major League Baseball. So Cromartie's transition to Japanese baseball, it wasn't just a financial decision for him. It was a cultural shift that he really embraced when he went over there. So in Japan, he quickly adapted and embraced the local culture. He became a fan favorite because he had this outgoing personality and a genuine interest in trying to get to know the people that lived in his new home. And he played really well there. He hit over 30 home runs three times. He maintained a 321 batting average, a 372 batting average, and then a 558 batting average during his three years in Japan. And he became one of the top run producers in the country. And he was named the Nippon Professional Baseball MVP in 1989. So he spent time in Japan. It was marked by just solid performance, his adaptation to a different place to play. And his success in Japan was a template for other players to consider going to somewhere else to be able to play uh, outside of the American or the National League. Now, Cromartie did return to North America for one final season with the Kansas City Royals in 1991. He was 37 years old, but he continued to contribute. He served as a backup outfielder. He was a pinch hitter. And it was just interesting to see a guy at that point in his career make that kind of a move. So that's one reason we remember Cromartie. On December 29th, 1878, Cuba founded its first professional baseball league. So this was a big moment in Cuban history, especially when it comes to sports. There was an official... Professional Baseball League of Cuba that was founded. And it's one of the earliest and long-lasting professional baseball leagues outside of the United States. It lasted from 1878 to 1961, and it was known for its high level of play and competitive spirit. The Cuban League was also noticeable because it had a full integration policy, which was progressive for the time period in the history of the sport. So the Cuban League's establishment was a reflection of the country's deep love and passion for baseball. It's a sport that had been introduced to the island in the 1860s, and it quickly became a part of the national identity. And the league started with around four teams, and then it transitioned to becoming a winter league that attracted local talent and major league players from the United States during the offseason. And it set up a bit of a cross-cultural exchange, and it helped elevate the play of major league players because they were getting good competitive play during the off season. And it obviously helped these prospects that were playing in Cuba be able to play against better talent and develop their games. So the Cuban league very quickly became a prestigious and competitive arena for baseball. One of the most notable moments in the league's history was in 1902 when the Havana team, they swept the competition. They ended the season with a record of 17 and O and a pitcher named Carlos Royer pitched every single game, and finished with a record of 17-0. and 0. 
And this really showcased, I think, the high level of talent that was existent in that league. Throughout the entire league's existence, it was a very interesting setup because it was a hotbed for talent, not only young guys, but guys that were well-established professionals in uh, the American and the National League. And it would have a significant impact on Major League Baseball in terms of the development of their talent and giving players a place to be able to continue practicing in the offseason. And baseball in Cuba, obviously, to this day, it's more than just a game. It's a symbol of their national pride, their cultural identity. The sport was even played in defiance of Spanish colonial authorities, and it became a unifying force for the Cuban people. So this Cuban League's establishment, it's a success story, shows the love and passion that Cubans had, even from an early on standpoint for baseball, which obviously continues to this day. On December 30th, 1935, the great Sandy Colfax was born. That's right. December 30th, 1935, Brooklyn, New York, Sandy Colfax enters the world. He started off as a very uh, talented basketball player in his high school years. That was his first love. And it turned into him shifting to baseball. And that's a testament, I think, to his overall athleticism. So initially, he signed with the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1954, and then he moved with the team when they went to Los Angeles. And when they made the move to the West Coast, that's when Koufax really started to flourish. So overall, in his career, he posted a 129 win and 47 loss record on the mound, obviously a testament to his prowess. He won three Cy Young Awards. And remember, these are uh, when only one was given out annually for both leagues during this time. So he was the Cy Young Award winner for the American League and National League. His pitching was characterized by this really powerful fastball. He had a devastating curveball, and he was one of the most feared pitchers of his time. Now, during his last five seasons, from 1962 to 1966, Koufax reached a level of performance that's often described as one of the best peak periods of any pitcher ever. In this span, he won 111 games and helped lead the Dodgers to numerous pennants and World Series titles. The 1963 season that he put together was particularly notable because he led the league in wins, ERA, shutouts, and strikeouts. He won the Cy Young Award, and he was the National League Most Valuable Player in one season. Now, despite all of these incredible successes, Koufax's career was relatively short compared to other players. He only played 12 seasons. He retired at the peak of his career. He kept having injury issues with arthritis in his pitching elbow. And it's one of the great questions for fans to consider what if he'd been able to play a couple more years? What could he have accomplished? But his legacy endures, obviously, to this day. He's remembered as one of the great left-handed pitchers in the history of the game. And on December 31st, 1972, we pause to remember the life of Roberto Clemente, who died in a plane crash. Yes, so the world of baseball, and I think humanitarianism at large, was shaken by the tragic death of Roberto Clemente. The guy was an amazing athlete, but he was also a philanthropist, excuse me, folks. And he was en route to deliver aid to earthquake victims in Nicaragua when his plane crashed into the Atlantic Ocean at the age of 38 years old. So Clemente's baseball career, just to quickly overview it, nothing short of spectacular. Over 18 seasons with the Pirates, he amassed a 317 batting average, which was a testament to his skill bot. Like at the plate as a hitter, he also collected exactly 3,000 hits, 
that made him the 11th player to reach that milestone. His prowess as a right fielder also can't be understated. I mean, overall, he won 12 Gold Glove Awards for his defensive excellence. He was also a 15-time All-Star. So it showcases his ability at the plate and in the field, one of the premier players of his era. We also remember in the 1960 World Series, that was a huge career landmark for him. He batted 310, and he played a key role in the Pirates' victory over the New York Yankees that season. And in 1966, he was named the National League's most valuable player. And his power and precision just obviously on display for everybody to be able to see throughout his career. But off the field, he was known for his humanitarian efforts and that deep commitment to helping others. He was known for spreading charity work throughout Latin America and the Caribbean. And of course, that was just a desire. I think he had to give back to the communities that really supported him as a child, as he grew into adulthood and throughout his career. So unfortunately, obviously, we remember him uh, for the incredible accomplishments on the field, the unfortunate circumstances surrounding his death at such a young age. It's a tough one to remember, but certainly a great guy, to say the least. So we remember Roberto Clemente on this day. Folks, that brings us to the end of our episode for this week. I want to thank you for taking the time to make this a part of your day. I hope you have a continual rest of the December time as restful for you. Enjoy your new year, and I'm going to see you in 2024. Till then, have a good one. We'll see you next time.